Good morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to the 8311 Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Barry, and Wyatt Tudor as we talk to you about college basketball, the NFL, the NBA, tennis, and of course, our signature segments, Mike's Stupid Rules, and Write That Down Predictions, here on episode 161. In case you're living under a rock, Super Bowl... 56 will be the LA Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals. A combination that I don't think any of us ever predicted, which is kind of cool, I suppose, and also expected because we always get everything wrong. But with that matchup comes three cool fun facts to start off our episode this week. Number one, this Super Bowl will be the second matchup of number one overall quarterbacks, the first being Peyton Manning and Cam Newton in 2016. Number two, there have only ever been 17 overall number one draft picks that have actually won the Super Bowl which is a wild number. Uh, And number three, Sean McVay and Zach Taylor are the youngest head coaching matchup in Super Bowl history at ages 36 and 38 years of age. Luckily, none of us are that old, but once we reach the very medium age of 36 and 38 years old, I can guarantee you that none of us are going to be coaching an NFL caliber team, let alone one in the Super Bowl. Like a basketball bouncing off the hardwood, we need to talk about this bounce back from the Cyclone basketball teams before we talk about more of the NFL, though. Yeah, we do. So if you remember on last week's episode, uh, it was a bad week for the uh, the Cyclone basketball teams, both men and women, who went 0-4 two weeks ago. Major bounce back on um, this last week. They were uh, 4-0 and um, this last week, starting with the women. Um, uh, they beat KU at home. Now, KU is normally not good at women's basketball. I know, it's weird. Kansas not being good at basketball. Um, this year, they're a little better than normal. They've got a chance to make the tournament for the first time in like nine years. Um, but still a game you got to win at home. And, and the woman took care of business. It wasn't, uh, wasn't ever particularly in doubt, or at least I didn't think it was particularly in doubt when I was watching it. Um, they ended up winning that game 77-62. to 62. Um, and then they went on the road to a Texas Tech team who's just pretty much awful um, in, in women's basketball. And they took them down 86 to uh, 65. It looks like these women's team, the women's team is back on all cylinders. Um, both, both Ashley and Aubrey Jones are back to their normal um, amount of playing time, which certainly helps um, with the Cyclones' three-point shooting. That was, as always, really good um, in both of these games. They shot, uh, they made 11 threes um, against KU, and then they made another um, 10 against uh, Texas Tech. So, just all around great play um, and great shooting from the Cyclone women, um, as you expect from a Bill Fenley coached team. Um, with those wins, they moved up to number 11 in the AP poll, um, so up two spots from where they were um, last week. Um, also, the Women's Selection Committee unveiled their first um, top 16 um, ranking, it's called, right, where they reveal who the, the, the top four seeds, seed lines would be. Um, and the Cyclones were a three seed in that ranking, and that came... Um, early in this week um, before um, these wins. So that was good for the Cyclones. The selection committee still thinks the Cyclones women are A-OK. Another note is on Monday, the uh, women's late season uh, top 20 for the Wooden Award uh, came out, and Ashley Jones is on that list. So that means 
she's roughly at least one of the 20 best players in the nation. That's not a surprise. I'm pretty sure we all knew that. Um, looking forward, um, two games for the women this week. A big one on Wednesday. Um, K-State comes to town. Um, on, that'll be Wednesday, 6.30 on ESPN+. Plus. If you remember, K-State is the game the Cyclones won on the road with a banked-in three um, with less than 10 seconds left. Um, so probably their closest game of the year was at K-State. So that game at home, that's a big one on Wednesday. And then on um, Saturday at 6 p.m. on ESPN+, Plus, they play an absolutely terrible um, Oklahoma State team. That's an Oklahoma State team who's 6-12 uh, and 12 on the year. Um, yeah, 1-8 one, one in eight, one in, eight in conference play, and they're coming in losing six in a row right now. So that's that's going to be a game that you know the women are going to hopefully win pretty easily but that K-State game is no slouch of a game. Right? K-State's ranked number 25 in this this week's rankings. So and their their center, mind you, is the girl who just set the NCAA record for points in a game at 61. 61 points in a game um and she was absolutely unstoppable. So she had more points than OU had um, in that game, basically. So just one person. They, you got to guard her. It starts and ends with her. So if you can guard her and keep her under, you know, maybe 30, it, you might have, have a pretty decent chance. But don't let her score 60. <laughs> I mean, she scored 38 when uh, the two teams played in Manhattan. So she had 38 and 11. When they school, when they uh, when they played in uh, Manhattan, so yes, keep her under control, and you will probably um, win that basketball game. Um, on the men's side, it was also a uh, a good week. Um, they started off the week by taking down Oklahoma State in what was one of the uh, most exciting games of the year. Like objectively, it was one of the most exciting games of the year, um, according to Ken Palm. I think it was Ken Palm, the excitement index or whatever. It was like the sixth most exciting game of the year, like across the nation. It was the tension, it was the tension ranking. Um, so the ISU-OSU game ranks number three in Ken Palm's tension game ranks out of more than 2,500 games played this season. Tension is the measurement of how close the win probability is to 50% throughout the game. No wonder why adrenaline was pumping that entire game while watching it and just for even like an even further statistic in the past decade so out of the last 10 years over 50,000 games played it was the 14th most 14th most tense game in the past 10 years yeah that that's what you end up with when the lead is never more than four for either team the entire game literally the entire game was played within four points of tied um, it was, it was pretty intense. No team could pull away. Um, Isaiah Brockington carried that team late. He hit so many clutch jump shots, um, down, especially in the last five minutes. Like they were tough shots too. It's not like he was getting layups or open threes. He was creating, he was hitting tough jumpers with defenders in his face. Just an awesome performance from Isaiah Brockington. And Caleb Grill was really hot from three. He uh, shot. He hit five of seven threes 
um, during that game. So just a just a great performance by um, Caleb Grill as well. He kept Iowa State in that game um, with big shots whenever Oklahoma State tried to go on a run. Um, there was a switch up in the starting lineup, um, and that was um, uh, Robert Jones replacing um, George Condit in the starting lineup for the starting uh, center. Um, but Condit coming off the bench probably played his best game of what I think, I thought it was his best game of the year um, against Oklahoma State. He didn't turn the ball over nearly as much. He had probably his best rebounding game of the year. I believe he had eight eight or nine rebounds in that game. Yeah, he had eight rebounds in that game to lead the team. Just a great game from Condit um, off the bench. But yeah, it was a you needed to get that that win um, to to avoid being a bottom feeder in the uh, the Big Twelve standings, and and they did their job. They took a break from conference play um, on. Saturday for the Big 12 SEC Challenge, um, and they 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 took care of they took care of business. Mizzou's bad, and they took care of business. Um, so it's officially the end of the non-conference season. Um, they were five and zero against um, the the major conference teams: the big the Big East, the SEC, the Pac-12, and the Big Ten. They were five and zero against those teams um, in the non-conference, which is which is really good. Those are the games you got to win. Um, but in this game against Mizzou, in my opinion, Mizzou just sort of imploded in the last 25 minutes of that game. Like, I don't know if you guys have other thoughts, but to me, that was the story is Mizzou just played like a bad team in the last 25 minutes. It's true. I mean, Mizzou went on a Iowa State-esque drought, uh, to start the second half. I mean, they missed 10 of their first 11 shots in that second half while Iowa State went on a 15 to nothing run. To open that game up, I think I forget what the the score ended up being there when they opened it up, but it it was pretty much over at that point. Yeah, and really, really, the stretch for me that 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 sealed it was not that uh, was not the the drought at the end of the first half. It was the last uh, what was it? The last thirty, the last forty seconds, really of of forty five seconds of the first half. When Missouri turned it over, Tyrese Hunter hit a jumper. Then, inexplicably, they got a 10-second violation, bringing it up half court when we weren't even pressuring them. Like they just, he just walked it up the court so slow. He got a 10-second violation with no pressure. Then Mizzou fouled and got a technical foul called on the coach for arguing. Isaiah Brockington makes four straight free throws to give the Cyclones a 32-29 lead, and Mizzou misses the last shot. Like, like an inexplicable turnover and then four straight free throws. And the Cyclones were off and running from there, and that's all it took. Um, yeah, Mizzou just did not play well. They played like a, an 8-12 and team, which, which they are. Um, so, other highlights. Um, I would say that uh, Tyrese Hunter, I don't know if it was his best game, He's looked really good in some other games, but I thought he played really well, um, was able to create some for himself, which was nice to see. That was also his first game without a turnover, so that was nice to see. Uh, hopefully we can see a little bit more of that going forward, just a little bit more of that ball security. I will say uh, Mizzou's just not that good of a team. They ended up shooting 42% from the field and 35% from three. 
their averages on the season are 42% and 27% from three. So we really just watched a more drastic version of them playing to their normal level. They just did well in the first half and then didn't do well in the second half. And we really saw a pretty standard game for that team. They've got like four more turnovers than is their average, which is expected from a team that is one of the best at forcing turnovers in the country. Um, other notes from that game, Caleb Gwill, uh stayed, uh, wouldn't, he had an okay, I guess I, I put in the notes that he stayed hot, but really he shot two of seven from three. Maybe those shots just seemed bigger than they were. I guess he wasn't actually that good from three. So scratch that. Caleb Grill did not stay hot. He was back to being Caleb Grill where he shoots too many threes and doesn't make enough of them. Um, Jazz Kuntz, on the other hand, um, finally got back to doing what he does, and that's making shots. He hadn't scored in three games until he hit three threes and scored 11 points um, against Mizzou. Um, Bonus fun fact, he is one of two players in the nation shooting 50% or better from three on the season. So, I mean, this is more what we should expect from him. You know, three of five from three, you know, three of six, things like that. That's the kind of shooter he is. So it was good to see him back. Um, and with all of that, it led to a lot of help for Brockington between Hunter and and Kuntz having those good games. Um, Brockington only accounted for... 12.5% of our field goals made compared to almost 24% um, for the season. We need to keep giving him that help because although he can take over a game like he did against Oklahoma State, it would be great if he didn't have to, if we had other things we could go to because sometimes he's just going to miss those shots that he was making against Oklahoma State. So we need to have other people that can help him out. The uh, The team did move up in the AP poll um, up to 20th. Um, so they're staying right around there, um, and that was nice. There's been a big improvement um, since the TCU game in ball movement. There was just no ball movement against TCU, and that's been better um, these last few games, which is which has helped. It's helped the offense look better. Um, the, the the improvement in the Ken Palm in offense hasn't shown up because of these last two games, but I've liked what I've seen, and hopefully that gives us some momentum. Um, going forward. We're still 109th in the Ken Palm in adjusted offense, which is not uh, not phenomenal. But if we can keep some of that ball movement going that we saw these last weeks, that'll help a lot. Or these last two games, I should say. That'll help a lot. Um, looking forward, big matchup coming Tuesday, the rematch against KU in Hilton Coliseum. Um, it'll be 6 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, what do you guys got for keys to the to keys to this game? Uh, I I wrote it down in the notes, and I think it's something that Iowa State's definitely going to have to do. I can the Cyclones hold KU under sixty five points in this game? Yeah, and now immediately you might be like, "Oh, that's probably not possible." But Iowa State over their last ten games has only been allowing sixty four and a half points per game, but their offense is only averaging sixty six point three points per game. So. It's going to be a close game um, with their defense, but I believe in order to win this game, you can't allow KU to score how they have been scoring over their last 10, which is 75.3 points per game. Um, If you're up in that 75-point range, your offense isn't going to keep up uh, with KU bucket for bucket. It it just can't happen. The defense has to to get some big stops, um, get some kills, as we're calling it now, um, and 
really really hold KU to a good number below that their their per game scoring average as of late. Well, we held them to 62 when we played them in the fog, so there's a chance. I think it's possible. Um, I think the big key to it, I mean, we heard it for a million years before the KU-UK game. It's all about the paint. If you can disrupt them in the paint, then you can do all right with them. Um, obviously, we don't have an Oscar Shibway, but we need to rely on our weird kind of forward rotation that we have, and they need to make sure that they do not foul. Both of our big guys have problems with fouls. If we can avoid foul trouble and just play solid defense, I think we have a pretty good chance with home court advantage. Yeah, the Hilton faithful is going to have to to come out big, big Tuesday night to uh, to will that team to victory, and you know they will. That game is going to be sold out. The student section is probably already camping out um, outside of Hilton for this game. Um, it'll be a big one. Um, and second this second this week, another top twenty five showdown when the Cyclones go to play Texas in Austin. That'll be 1 p.m. Sunday on the Longhorn Network, which, you know, we all love games on the Longhorn Network, I know. Um, so figure out how to watch Longhorn Network for that game. I don't know. I need to figure that out, too. I don't know how I'm going to watch it. Um, but that's another one. Another, right? These are both quad one win um, opportunities. The Cyclones are uh, tied for second in the nation in quad one wins, um, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a... It's based on the net rankings. It's something the selection committee uses. So a quad one win um, is when you beat an opponent um, who, if you are playing at home, um, a quad one win is a win against a team who is ranked um, one through 30 in the uh, in the net. Um, or if they're ranked one through 50 on a neutral court or one through 75 on the road. Um, so with playing two good teams, these are both, um, these are both quad one win uh, opportunities here for the Cyclones who can continue to build on a, on a great quad one resume with six wins already. So it should be another fun week. After this, the schedule really gets easier for the Cyclones. Um, after this Texas game, they have no, uh, they play no top 25 opponents until they end the season at Baylor on March 5th. So they'll go a month without playing a top 25 opponent after that Texas game. So it finally gets easier after this brutal start to the schedule um, coming up after the Texas game, which will be nice. I mean, we did lose to TCU and Oklahoma, so I think we've learned not to take it for granted just because they don't have a number next to their name this season. That's true, but West Virginia has also turned out to be really not that great, and we get to play West Virginia twice. And also K-State is not great, and we get to play them twice. So that should help. Not saying we'll win all four of those games. It's just easier than playing Kansas and Baylor. Right, exactly. When you see us at the bottom of the standings, realize that um, Texas has played five out of their six games against West Virginia, K-State, and Oklahoma State, and Iowa State has played one out of their six games against those three teams. So like that, there can be a big swing in the standings here um, as, as that, uh, that strength of schedule evens out a little bit um, as we go along. So despite the Cyclones' bad conference record, I have a feeling that's going to even out a little bit 
um, over the course of the rest of the season. So, plus we've already played Texas Tech twice, and I think Texas Tech is the best team in the Big Twelve. You both can fight. You all can fight me over that if you want, but I'm saying Texas Tech is the best team in the conference. I'm not going to fight you over that. I think it's Texas between Texas Tech and Kansas, which they're one and one against each other uh, so far, with Texas Tech almost winning in Allen Fieldhouse too. But you know, it's we'll we'll see what happens as the Big Twelve. <clears throat> continues to shake itself out. But what has shaken itself out and what Wyatt has already alluded to is the outcomes of championship weekend in the NFL. Uh, it started at uh, 2 p.m. Central on Sunday with the Chiefs and the Bengals uh, as the Chiefs were hosting their fourth consecutive conference championship game and this game seemed like it was going to be a snoozer uh, with the basically just the first three drives of the first half from uh, the Chiefs. They started very, very strong. Um, they were three for three on their on their first three possessions, all three of them touchdowns. Um, Mahomes was scrambling, making plays, uh, throwing touchdown passes. And this game at 21 to three felt as if it was rolling towards a blowout. Uh, I never really felt watching this game that it was actually going to end up being a blowout. I thought the Bengals would come back and score a little bit, but little did I picture the uh, epic collapse, I believe, that the Chiefs had in the second half. And what what really started it all, and I, I sent it to the group message of, of your 8311 cast hosts, I said... That uh, not scoring any points before the half from the one-yard line was a killer. And both Ariane and Mike said, probably shouldn't matter too much. Well, three points ended up mattering a ton in this game. Um, the Chiefs were went absolutely dormant in the second half. I, I don't know. They hibernated at halftime, didn't come out of, didn't come out of the locker room. <laughs> they came out. Just a completely different team. 83 total yards in the second half, only three points, two interceptions in seven drives total. Um, Patrick Mahomes against a three-man rush. It just three-man rush. Offensive line shouldn't have any issues. Mahomes, 12 dropbacks, 29.1 passer rating, three of eight on those, those uh, passing attempts, only 15 yards. He had one interceptions, four sacks. Uh, and one fumble, which was recovered, almost pushing, you know, the, the Chiefs thought they had the field goal to tie it at the end. They were going for the touchdown, the game winner. But Mahomes fumbles and almost loses the whole game. Uh, thanks to Joe Tooney, they gave themselves a chance, you know. Give the Bengals secondary credit. I, obviously, their coverage was good. Um, but there were a couple times when they panned out and you saw the, the image where Patrick Mahomes maybe didn't see the right guy at the right time. Um, in, in the opening, uh, on that fumble loss, Travis Kelsey did get open in the end zone for what could have been the game winning touchdown, but you know, to each his own Joe Burrow played a good game. Um, credit to him. He only had one interception in that game. Joe Mixon ran great for the Bengals. Um, Jamar chase was kind of held in check, but T Higgins had over a hundred yards receiving, um, and the Bengals first time since the eighties, you know, they're back in the Super Bowl. And uh, just a stat that um, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, while playing as teammates, 
have never lost a playoff game together. Will that streak continue? It'll be seen in two weeks uh, when they play in the Super Bowl, but so far they're undefeated as a quarterback-wide receiver duo. Uh, Quarterback-wide-receiver duo is is impressive in L.A., uh, to say the least. Cooper Cup has had a phenomenal season for the Los Angeles Rams, and Odell Beckham showed up uh, in this Rams game as well as they uh, played the 49ers in the eve in the NFC championship game, um, the Rams ended up snapping a six game losing streak to the 49ers. Think about that. That's six games in a row to their division rivals. And the Rams have been really good recently. Uh, They, they just couldn't seem to get over the hump. Um, But the 49ers offensive line held up against the Rams pass rush. Uh, It was actually the 49ers pass rush that was causing more of a disruption um on Matt Stafford in this game but Debo Debo Samuel had a had a massive game for the 49ers becoming one of the uh game-changing players in the NFL um by a long stretch uh he had a massive touchdown uh catch and run really where he just turned on the Jets and took off but Cooper Cup had a phenomenal game for the Rams as well over 100 receiving yards Odell Beckham over 100 receiving yards um, and the Rams, the Rams made a Super Bowl in Stafford's first year. He, the, they give up, you know, first, first round picks again. They don't have a first round pick until 2026. They give up Jared Goff. They bring in Matt Stafford and they did what they brought him in to do. Uh, and what Jimmy G couldn't do was take the, take the 49ers on a game winning drive at the end of the game. He just looked helpless. Uh, and, this stat, courtesy of Arion here, in six playoff games, he has a 28 passer rating in the fourth quarter, ranking last among quarter among 69 quarterbacks with 30 plus fourth quarter passes in the playoffs since 1991. Uh, that's a pretty abysmal passer rating for for someone who has been a statistically winning quarterback in the regular season. Uh, he he seems to win those games, but not the big ones. When you look at the their Super Bowl loss that they had to the Chiefs back in 2020, he needed to make a couple passes. He overthrew a wide receiver at the end of the game that on a it could have been a touchdown, and he just doesn't seem to have that it factor at the end of games in in the playoffs like a Tom Brady does. So, yeah, it just it just didn't work out for the 49ers. The Rams versus the Bengals. Uh, Mike, you were, you were telling us a little bit about this earlier. What are, what are some of those opening lines for this, this Super Bowl? Yeah, the lines have opened with the Rams being four and a half point favorites, um, in this, uh, in the Super Bowl. Um, ESPN's FPI gives the Rams a 66% chance of winning. 538 gives them a, uh, 68% 68% chance of winning. Um, so the Rams are, the Rams are definitely the favorite. Um, and their records in the year sort of align with that, right? The Rams had the better record and in theory played in the, the tougher division. Um, I don't know if practically any of that is true, but in theory, that's the case. So that's why you've got, um, the Rams being the edge. But if I'm you, if I'm, if I'm the Rams, I do not want to be playing the Bengals right now. 
The Bengals are they're playing with some swagger. They're paying, playing tough. Um, they're on fire. Um, it's been a heck of a day to uh, or a heck of a few weeks to be the Bengals. They're playing really, really well right now. So I don't know. I'm probably taking the Bengals. I think the Bengals are going to win. Who, do, who does everybody else got? I agree. I, I want the Bengals to win, and I, I think they're going to. I I have the Rams, much to Arion's dismay. Um, I I think Stafford's going to get his first Super Bowl, and I think it's I think it's good to see him, you know, get out of the the death grips that is the Detroit Lions sinking franchise. Um, and, and he'll he'll get his first Super Bowl. I think it'll be close. Um, I think it's going to be a twenty seven twenty four type type of game. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with Kyle, unfortunately. Obviously, I do not want the Rams to win, but I do believe they will win. They have one of the better defensive lines in the game. And as we've seen through these other playoff games, the Cincinnati offensive line is not fantastic. I see that being just Swiss cheese all game. He's going to get roughed up. He might not get sacked nine times, but I wouldn't be surprised if he gets sacked quite a bit. And uh, they don't have Ryan Tannehill behind the line, so I think they'll be able to survive it if he can get roughed up that much behind the line. And I will say one thing I do not like when we were watching the Chiefs game, you have this view that you always see, and it's the pocket, the quarterback, and the lines. We can't really see the coverage. So I felt like the whole second half, I'm like, what's happening back there? How good is the coverage? We can't see it. And I would love it if there was some other aspect that maybe we could just watch some of that route being run. I felt like that would be super helpful, but I found that kind of frustrating in the second half, just watching Patrick Mahomes sprint around like his hair was on fire and we had no reason why. Yeah, you do get some of that sometimes on the replay. They'll show the coverage, but yeah, I would like to be able to see the coverage sometimes because like, is Pat Mahomes just ad-libbing because he likes to and he's good at it? Or is the coverage really that good? Or his eyes not downfield? Patrick Mahomes is definitely, he's a little bit addicted to that magic, right? He's made it happen so many times. When he moves out of the pocket, runs back around, he can almost always find somebody open. But when it's the postseason and that stuff matters the most and you have to play it safe, sometimes you just need to be in the pocket. If it breaks down, step up in the pocket and throw the dang ball away. You're running around. Half the time he's faced backwards. You can't see his own receivers. Your eyes aren't down the field when you're looking like that. He needs to stay in the the pocket. That's the give and take you get when you when you get when you get some of those magical plays that happen, like his spin around uh, and then lob to Travis Kelsey. Everyone's like, I, Mike said it. You, Mike even said himself. He said, you know, I've seen it a bunch, but I'll never stop being amazed when it works out. Right, you're you're amazed when it works out, but then you see him at the end of the game twirl around, run around, fumble the damn football and almost blow the whole game, and then you're sitting there screaming at, at the TV, like, what are you doing? Just throw the football away in those those types of plays. So it, you take the good with the evil that is Patrick Mahomes scrambling around like that. I think it needs to be a little bit more situational, maybe. Just pick your spots. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it's, yeah, every 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 strategy has its flaw like that, and that's the one. Where he makes great plays, and sometimes you know the sack that otherwise would have been four yards is twenty yards. You know, that's the thing when you run around like that. You're running backwards most of the time. So we did see a similar thing at the end of the game where Jimmy G tries to run around, gets pressured, and then blindly flings the ball sideways while his face is facing the grass, and that also resulted in an interception. So if you're not 
If you're not Mahomes, definitely don't do that. Probably not that drastically different of an outcome of the game, but still ended up in an interception rather than having a fourth down play instead. Yeah. So basically is don't be a maniac and just, you know, be okay and you'll be okay. Also, don't throw the ball short of the end zone with four seconds left in the half and no timeouts. Somebody should make you a head coach. That's a good idea. Like, I don't get why you're throwing the ball anywhere short of the ends. Like, that I'm not just, sure why that was a route that was on the field at all. I know, right? Like, I, this is my thing about sports in general, and I've, I've probably said it before on this podcast. Physical mistakes, they happen. People aren't perfect. Even at the MLB or the NFL level, physical mistakes are going to happen. I get it. You drop an interception, you know, thing, yeah, you fumble the football. It happens sometimes. I get it. You hate it, but I get it. But mental mistakes, I can't stand the mental mistakes, right? You ran the route, right? You, that route even running to, in the first place, that's a mental mistake, right? Throwing the ball when you're getting sacked, that's a mental mistake. That's not a physical mistake, right? It's the mental mistakes I can't stand. And I don't know, yeah, those are the ones that drive me crazy. I can't stand those mental mistakes. That route should not have been any probably should not have been run and once it was run it should just have been a decoy you should have been sliding a tight end over the top of it or something and that should have been the route you were actually going for you can't throw the ball there that's a mental mistake especially from one of the best teams and one of the best offensive coaches in the league you just kind of expect a little bit more and to be on top of that all the time basically and you know something else uh it was on top of and maybe a little too on top of was uh Adam Scheffner on Saturday, who uh, came out and reported that Tom Brady uh, is retiring, but then Tom Brady's agent and dad came out and said, no, 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 nobody's decided anything. So at this point, we'll say that Tom Brady has officially done nothing but unofficially retired. I don't even know how you want to report this. Well, I mean, he came out with Jeff Darlington and they said he is going to retire. Everybody obviously reacted. Our Twitter reacted. Uh, we put it up pretty quick. And then you immediately get these reports from his family and his agent saying he didn't do anything. Um, and then people followed back with Adam Schefter and asked him, like, they have not confirmed any of this. Do you stand with it? And he said, I stand with my reporting. Um, I will say Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski as well are like the worst, right? We can't have anything fun. You can't announce anything by yourself. They ruin every surprise. They're the kid in class that tells you Santa isn't real and then tells you what your parents bought you five days before Christmas. I'm like, we can't have anything fun anymore because these guys are always breaking news. And if there's anybody who's going to come back out of spite and just hatred, it's, it's going to be Tom Brady. So a big part of me hopes that he was going to retire. And even says that in a press conference and then says, I'm going to come back for a whole nother year now just to uh, prove you wrong because I can still play it better than pretty much everybody else. Well, but I mean, you almost can't blame like Woj and Scheffner for this, right? Because it's right. It's the fact that all of us are just ready to eat this up as soon as we hear it. And two, it's the sources that are giving them, right? It's the sources inside organizations that are leaking these things. That, right? I thought it was... I thought it was funny. My wife, <laughs> she said, well, why, how does he even find this stuff out? If you just saw Adam Schefter creeping around your house or your gym, wouldn't you kick him out? And I'm like, I don't think he's running around in person. 
But then she was like, what do these sources have to gain from talking to him? And I didn't really have an answer for that. Why, if you're in Tom Brady's camp, are you whispering things to Adam Schefter? He doesn't cite you. What do you gain from that? Like like that one, I, I don't know. But like, for example, some agents might leak news about a player going to sign a contract because then, right? So what I'm looking at is, is the Dalvin Cook situation, right? So Adam Scheffner has broke all of the uh, Dalvin Cook contract news, you know, basically from the time he entered the NFL, right? And then just this last year, for those of you who don't know, Dalvin Cook was involved in a situation where a woman filed a restraining order against him, but Dalvin Cook is saying she assaulted him. Anyway, big mess. I'm not going to get into the details. But basically, before the woman's lawsuit became public, Scheffner had already tweeted that Dalvin Cook says he's being extorted by this woman, right? So that was obviously Cook's camp using the leverage they got on Scheffner by leaking his contract details before to get a jump on this story, right? So basically, you're giving information now in order to, to have this, this inside in case you need, right, you need to get it later, Right, you want to get out ahead of something later. Fair enough. I don't know how that applies to this Tom Brady situation, but that's one example I can think of as why you would leak things like this. I don't know, but I really like the mental image of uh, Adam Schefter creeping around like a cartoon character and writing all this down <laughs> in a sketchbook or something. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. And not just texting on three cell phones at once, which is probably what he's While he's on doing. ESPN obnoxiously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll follow up over the next couple of weeks to see if Tom Brady actually retires or not. Um, we will let you know. But for now, Ariane will do what he does best and fill us in on what's going on in the NBA. Yeah, we're just going to do a little quick rundown because uh, I haven't got you guys watching the NBA yet. Once the NFL season you know, is over, I'll start making you guys watch games so we can discuss it a little bit. But uh, the All-Star starters got announced this week. Um, in the West, you have Stephen Curry, John Morant, Andrew Wiggins, LeBron James, and Nikola Jokic, and they will be coached by Monty Williams of the Suns. Uh, one of those may seem different than the other ones, and that would obviously be Andrew Wiggins. So uh, the all-star starters are voted by a combination of media, uh, player, and fan vote. It's a large amount fan vote, though, and Andrew Wiggins just did really well in the fan vote. Um He's in a big market. People like the Warriors overall. Apparently, a a brand ambassador for the Warriors is some K-pop person that I don't know. And he put something on his social media to vote for Andrew Wiggins. So that could be part of it. But uh, some conversation came up about, do we need to change the way starters are voted in? Because Andrew Wiggins, uh, probably not one of the two best forwards in the West right now, but Uh, That's how it shook out. So interesting stuff there. And in the East, we have Trey Young, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Joel Embiid. And their coach has yet to be determined as it is based on record, and they're still too close. Um, But we'll see what that shakes out to be once we get closer to the the All-Star break. Wait, so the the, the coach is based, so basically the best record in the conference, the coach coaches the All-Star game, is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah, and it, you can't do it two times in a row. Gotcha. So uh, the All-Star Reserves will be selected by the coaches of both conferences, and they will be unveiled Thursday, February 3rd on TNT. So tune in if you are interested in that. The TNT crew is always great. Um, just some injury news. 
just the big ones. Joe Ingles, it just got announced that he tore his ACL and will miss the remainder of the season and probably some of the next season as well. Uh, that's a big deal because he is, one, a big part of the Jazz, and he was considered a potential trade piece with him getting older in his contract. Um, they were going to maybe try and move him and get something in return. Obviously, that has changed now. Shea Gilgis Alexander is out with a right ankle sprain until at least the All-Star break. Uh, the Thunder are not necessarily rushing to get him back because they are in full-blown tank mode and just looking for those picks to be as high as possible. And then you have LeBron, who is out with knee swelling. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they just announced that they do not necessarily have a timetable for return for him. They're just waiting for the swelling to go down. And he is more or less considered day-to-day. And that is all I have for you today. And I'll let Kyle talk about the Australian Open since he is our resident tennis expert. One, one, more, one quick question for you. And when is the All-Star break uh, in the NBA? I don't even know when uh, the All-Star game is. The All-Star game is February 20th, I believe. And there are things leading up to that weekend for the like three days prior to it. Uh, so like the Rising Stars game, three-point competition, dunk competition, celebrity game. Uh, will be that day and the day prior and possibly the day before. I'm not 100% sure, but it'll be that February 20th weekend. Gotcha. Thank you. Which I think uh, we'll all be together that that weekend, except for Kyle. Is that right? Yeah. Go Cyclones. Yeah, go Cyclones. That is correct. Go Cyclones. But for this section of the episode, we are talking about what is... I mean, by far one of the greatest male athletes ever to play um, any sport, respectively, and being at the top of his game for a long, long period of time. That being Rafa Nadal. Um, playing I, just two months ago, the the guy thought in his entire camp thought that he might not ever get to play tennis ever again. After his foot, foot injury, they thought it was that severe when he took quite a bit of time off and had surgery on it last year. But he came back, played a phenomenal Australian opening, capped it off against Danielle Medvedev. Uh, it, it was number two versus number six in the tournament. Rafa was down two sets um, in the Australian Open, and he came back to win um, in the fifth set overall, he was on court for over five hours, five hours and 24 minutes. This game ended just after uh, 1 a.m. in Australia. So this game was going on at 3.30 in the morning um, all the way until 8, 8, like 8.30 a.m. Central. And some of the some of the just the stats and accomplishments of Rafa uh, in this historic run that is his career. He's the first man to win 21 Grand Slam finals. Uh, he broke the tie that he was in, the three-way tie between Djokovic and Roger Federer, who still are at 20. He's the first male in an open era to win the Australian Open from two sets down. Uh, the fourth man to win each Grand Slam singles title multiple times, so that between Australia, Wimbledon, French Open, and the U.S. Open, and then he has contested the two longest Grand Slam singles finals ever. Uh, this one being the five hour and 24 minute um, final. And then he also was a part of the 2012 final, which was absolutely fantastic between him and Novak Djokovic. That one lasted 
uh, over, or that one was five hours and 53 minutes being the longest final in Grand Slam history. Uh, just some stats on the game. I, Nadal won the game while only having three aces uh, and gave up or allowed 23 aces. Um, he had less winners, more unforced errors, but he ended up winning. Um, somehow he willed himself back into this game and became the 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 champion that he is now with the 21 Grand Slam titles. Uh, history was made and he'll get a crack at continuing to increase that, that title count, um, this year. I think he'll probably go on to win, um, Roland Garros again, but we'll see if Novak Djokovic is able to play at all this year due to his, um, vaccine status and how they will, uh, handle that going forward. But for now, Rafa Nadal wins his first Australian Open since 2009 when he won it uh, the first time, and he's back on top in Australia. Yeah, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the majors um, for the year, I guess, uh, play out to see if anybody will uh, will overcome um, 21. So in Mike's Stupid Rules this week, we're going to talk about that something that's been on my mind um, for really the last three weeks in college basketball, and that is what actually is or isn't reviewable um, in college basketball. So we're going to go straight to the rule book for this. Um, so in the 2021 NCAA rule book um, for college basketball, replay reviews are handled under Rule um, Rule 11. Um, so, basically, um, the things that you can review at any time, um, you can review on free throws. You can de- to um, you can determine um, who should be su- shooting a free throw if you're not sure um, um, who got fouled. Um, and you can see if they're shooting two or three free throws based on where they were. When the foul occurred, you can, of course, review scoring, whether or not a basket was a two or a three, um, or whether um, the the shot clock um, went off before or, af- before or after the, sh- uh, the shot was off, um, things like that. You can also review timing, for example, if there was a malfunction in the shot clock or anything like, or the game clock, you can um, review that. Um, and you can also review putting the correct time back on the game clock, um, for example, as well. Um, you can also review to see if you're going to call a flagrant foul, um, which I won't get into the definition of a flagrant foul, but it, um, you can uh, review to see if you're going to call a foul a flagrant foul. Um, you can also, um, you also mandate it. So those are the all the times an official could use replay. They are mandated to use replay at the end of a game to see um, um, if there's time left on the clock or shouldn't be, um, uh, as far as did a basket count, etc., etc. Um, that's the only time they have to um, use replay. They are, it is mandated that they use replay at the end of a game if anything close happens at the end of the game. Now, the one I really want to get into is in the last two minutes. There are special rules in the last two minutes. 
Um, these are things that can only be reviewed in the last two minutes of a game. All the other things can be reviewed at any time. In the last two minutes, you can review, um, or any overtime, um, you can review out of bounds. You can review who the ball went out of bounds off of only in the last two minutes. Um, you can also review um, a block charge call, but only if you're reviewing whether or not a player was inside the restricted arc. So you can't, you know, review was he moving, was he set, etc., etc., but you can review whether or not he was in the restricted area only in the last two minutes. And the last one um, is basket interference or goaltending. So contrary to what was said during the Iowa State KU game, goaltending or basket interference is reviewable only in the last two minutes. You saw this in the Oklahoma State game um, where there was a call of offensive goaltending, which I guess is technically called basket interference, um, on Oklahoma State, and they went and reviewed that and eventually upheld it. You can review for goaltending um, in the final two minutes. Um, yeah, so really um, what should have happened there so that play in the Iowa State KU game, I went back and looked at the play-by-play, happened with 148 remaining. So really that should have been reviewable um, in the Iowa State KU game based on my interpretation of the rule book. Wyatt, does that match your interpretation of rule one, um, rule one section, what section is this? Uh, rule one, section two, article one, part uh, E. Rule one or rule 11? Rule 11, sorry, Rule 11, Section 2, Article 1, Part e, Part 3. Yeah, that jives. I mean, yeah, I mean, we have similar replay rules like that in football and everything, you know, where uh, some of these normally unreviewable things are actually reviewable under a certain time period. So, but it would have been nice if they would have reviewed that goaltending. Yeah, it would have been. And at the time, I just went along with what the announcers said, and goaltending isn't reviewable. Okay, it doesn't make sense, but okay, if those are the rules, but the, those are not the rules. So, boo, Lesson bad job learned, don't should... trust the announcers to know the rules, because they yeah, don't I always. <laughs> I should have learned that. Baseball announcers are really bad at not knowing obscure rules, if you haven't noticed that one, too. Don't listen to baseball announcers about obscure rules. Wyatt, as our resident referee, why are some things only reviewable in the last two minutes like it's okay to get them wrong in the entire game but just not the last two minutes i mean i don't have a concrete answer for you my best guess would be uh it was put into place as somewhat of a time-saving measure i guess maybe there was fear that it would make the game go on too long if we reviewed every single uh basket interference call uh, there might be a legitimate reason for it that i'm not aware of but i get that on some calls but uh Basket interference or goaltending does not come up. It, it might not even come up every game. It seems like an easy one to just put in as we can review it whenever. Because one, it doesn't happen terribly often. And two, it seems like they get it wrong like a consistent amount of the time. Like they just kind of guess. Feels like it's 50-50, but that's probably just me being biased and bitter. And, and that one specifically, I mean, before we even started the episode, I was complaining about how that's te- that's technically a judgment call. And the more I think about it, the more... It is a judgment call, right? I mean, did it hit the glass? Did it not hit the glass? Is it on the way down or is it not on the way down? Those are factual, right? Yeah, but I don't know. That's a hard one. Yeah. And so to to uh, 
since uh, Wyatt mentioned uh, judgment calls, right? So in Rule 11, Section 1, Article 4, it says the officials shall not use replay equipment for judgment calls, such as a foul occurring, basket interference, or goaltending, with the exception of the last two minutes, and determining if a violation occurred, with the exception of, again, the last two minutes. Um, so basically they're trying to eliminate replays on more subjective calls, um, cause if they consider about pace of play, they could do what they do with like a made two or three, right? Where they just, at the next media timeout, they review it and make a decision, right? You could do that with goaltending too, right? Cause it's, right, it's not something that changes the immediate course of play enough to, yeah, anyway. I don't think it's a pace of play issue, at least that's not what I would say it is for, for goaltending, at least. But now you know, so in the last two minutes, that goaltending is reviewable. Uh, moving on, you'll now know how good or bad we are at predictions, and mostly this week, just how good or bad Kyle is at predictions. Most of this accountability session is just Kyle. Um, to get us started, Kyle, way back, the, his first write-that-down prediction of this season of write-that-down predictions was that the Rams would go to the Super Bowl this year. That did come true with their win over the 49ers. That's a home run for Kyle. Ding-ding-ding-ding. Ding-ding-ding. Ding. Um, if you remember last week, Josh predicted um, that the Chiefs would lose on a walk-off field goal to the Bills. He predicted that anyway. You remember. Go back and listen to last week's episode if you don't remember all of that. I'm taking it off the board this week, so... Nah. 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 Uh, Kyle predicted that the Raiders would maintain the interim head coach and just remove that interim tag. They did not do that. I forgot who they hired, but it wasn't that Josh guy. McDaniels. Did they? Okay, yeah. so that is not their interim head coach. So for that, Kyle gets a... Nah. 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 But he redeemed himself by predicting that Rafa Nadal would win the Australian Open, which, as Kyle talked about, he did. So for that, Kyle gets a ding 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 Putting things back up on the board, I'm going to start. And I'm going to say that the Timberwolves, um, since we're getting closer to the, uh, just past the midway point in the season now, I'm going to say that the Timberwolves are going to make the playoffs. So they could do that either by getting in one of those first six seeds or making it out of the play-in games. Both would count as correct for my prediction, is what I'm saying. So the Timberwolves are currently in the 8th seed in the West. 7th uh, through 10 are a good chance to get into the play-ins as long as they keep up their consistent level of play and don't have any injuries, especially since the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Blazers are all dealing with injuries. I think they have a good chance to make the play-in. Um, now, that being said, the question is whether or not all these all-stars and injured people will come back and these teams will start to jive right before the play-ins and the playoffs. And then they will just get trounced by a fully staffed Clippers team or Lakers team. Um, you have to consider that there is some type of curse probably involved with the Timberwolves where they're destined to lose forever. Um, yeah, that's so, pretty much that. Yeah, it's a triple at worst, if not, or sorry, it's a double at worst, if not a triple, in my opinion. Um, I could see it going either way. I mean, you I'll have the best triple. analysis on this. I'll give triple? it a triple because we're far out. I dig it. I'll, I'll, I'll take you. triple. Yeah, I won't argue. Yeah, that's fine. Do we have anything from Josh this week? Is he still alive? Yep, uh, he was soaking in this NFL weekend just like everybody else. 
and he is uh, he is going to write down his Super Bowl prediction, unlike the uh, rest of us, and he's going to say that the Bengals um, win the Super Bowl. So I'm thinking based on the percentages I'm seeing, this is a double, like 33%. That's that's like a double in our book, isn't it? Or are we giving this a single? Uh, I personally say double, just for how I feel about how the game goes. Probably double, yeah. That's fine. Double it is. Wyatt, what do you got? For what seems like the classic play to end 2022 playoff games, I'm going to say the Super Bowl is going to end in a walk-off field goal. What's the uh, what's the spread on this game right now? Four and uh, a half. by four. Four, four and, and a half, half, yeah. Okay, so a field goal as well within reason. Yeah. I don't know, triple? I, yeah, that seems about right to me. Yeah. I don't expect this game to be a blowout in either direction, so it seems certainly possible that that would be the case. Uh, I dig it. Hearing no complaints, triple it is. What do you got, Kyle? I got that Evan McPherson, uh, kicker for the Cincinnati Bengals, will make three or more field goals in this game, and he will be 100% on all of his attempts. Is that all of his kick attempts or specifically just field goal attempts? Could he miss an extra point? All of his, all of his kicking, kicking attempts. He can't miss a single kick from a leg swing. Gotcha. Hmm. Boy, I don't know. Yeah, that's a know. hard one to uh, determine. Hold on. Triple? Three I mean, field goals yeah, is a lot. Three, yeah, three field goals here. is a lot. So in the divisional round, he kicked four field goals. In the AFC championship, or sorry, in the wild card, he kicked four field goals. In the divisional playoffs, he kicked four field goals. And in the AFC championship, he kicked four field goals. Jeez. So you're saying Given double? The two games before that, he kicked two and three field goals. He kicks a lot of field goals. Uh, yeah, I'd say double. Uh, you, you've talked me into a double. I'm fine with that. That's a lot I, of field goals. That's I anticipate... a lot of field goals for a double. I would protest. I, no, this. I had, no, I, I'm, think not, about I'm not agreeing with you, Kyle. I, I'm saying that it was a lot of field goals throughout the postseason. Plus the uh, the uh, Rams defense. It's three field goal. It's three field goals, and he has to make a hundred percent of them. Oh sure. But when was the last time he missed a field goal? Uh, uh he missed quite a few against, against the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> True that. On the season, he averages two point. He averages two field goals a game, basically. So, so yeah, that's not a triple then that he's going to get one field goal over average. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. How many field double. goals has he missed on this season? He's twenty-eight of thirty-three for an eighty-four point eight percent. So he's averaging well under half a miss per game. Two of those were from 50-plus yards. Yeah, I'm I'm sticking sticking with with double. double. And that's how democracy works, baby. What do you got, Arian? All right, I have J.B. Bickerstaff, who, uh, if you do not know, is the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, will be representing the East as the all-star coach. Uh, Currently, he is sitting... Oh, they must have finished a game since I made that prediction. They were sitting two games back. They're now one and a half games back. So that benefits me. Um, so basically you're aren't... saying the, the Cavs are going to be in first place at the All-Star break is another way of, of saying that. Is that yes. correct? They have to currently leapfrog the Heat, the Bulls, and the 76ers while not falling behind the Bucks and the Nets, who are all within uh, at most one and a half games of them. 
but the Bucks coach was the coach last year? Question mark. So they don't have to avoid falling behind the Bucks. Correct. I I think. I'm not 100 percent sure. Oh boy. Um, I have no idea. Oh, I'm sorry. It was Nick Nurse last year. Who who does he coach for? Sorry, Toronto. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, Toronto's not going to. Yeah. Okay. So he does have to worry about them. Yes. Okay. I don't know. Triple, double. I have absolutely no idea. Need some help. What guys. do you, what are you saying? What do you want to see from this, Ariane? I think a triple seems reasonable. Because not only say do they have to double, basically win all their games, but they also have to rely on the other top teams to drop some games. I'm going to say double because you shouldn't have gotten a home run last oh, week, wow. so I'm not giving you the benefit <laughs> of the doubt this week. I'm also feeling spiteful. Okay, so I'm just up on it. Right. And that's how democracy works. <laughs> yeah, we have seen that happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take my double. With three doubles and two triples, that concludes our Write That Down prediction segment, which means we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 161 of the 8311Cast. Appreciate y'all sticking around. Make sure you tune in next week. But in the meantime, check out our Twitter, at 8311Cast. It is fire. Signing off for 8311Cast, we have your hosts. Kyle Mersh. Mike Ludwig. Ariane Barry. And Wyatt Teeter. We'll talk to y'all again next week. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones.